Hey, CLC family. Hey, Christian Hessling here. Hey, you might have noticed this weekend that for our Sunday services, we experienced some technical difficulties. Maybe you were trying to tune in at 9 o'clock on Sunday and you were watching the service, but you couldn't hear a thing. Or maybe you were trying to watch at 1045 or 5 p.m. Or maybe you're trying to find the service now and you have not had any luck. That's because we had some technical problems where the sound was not working. So we do apologize. We appreciate your grace in in all of that. What actually happened was as the service was starting, uh, I was getting some texts and phone calls and people were like, hey, we can see everything. Everything looks awesome, but we actually can't hear anything, right? And so there's a little bit of scrambling during the music to figure that out. And of course, we didn't really have enough time to troubleshoot and fix that. Um, and so what happened was we just kind of uh, let the service stream without sound and we did not replay it. Um, however, I did fix the problem this morning, tested it out, so we should be good for this weekend, but of course, uh, we wanted to make sure you guys had access to the sermon, if that is something that you wanted to listen to, if you're trying to follow along with the series that we're in, Love Revolution. We wanted you to be able to follow uh, follow along and engage in what God is doing on Sunday mornings here at the church. And so here I am today, uh, re-recording the sermon right here in the studio for you to check out, for you to listen into. so we're so grateful, again, for your graciousness in that. It's just a fun part of being a church, right? We're not a perfect community, and that is A-OK because we have a perfect God who's got enough grace for all of our problems, right? And so thanks for tuning in. Thanks for leaning in. Today, we're going to continue on in our Love Revolution series. We're going to be in Colossians 3, and I'm super excited uh, that I got to share this weekend. Pastor Bob was away with family this weekend, which was wonderful. And so I got to step in and kind of help us uh, continue on in our series. And so that's what I'm going to do right now with all of you tuning in. And so today... Once again, in our series, Love Revolution, this series that's all about revolutionizing how it is that we love God and love our neighbor, right? Because what we see uh, Jesus do when he's teaching is he distills the entirety of the Old Testament into two commands. Every command, every invitation, every responsibility of the Christian, he distills and makes it so simple for us to understand. And he distills it into two commands, love God and love your neighbor, right? Very simple. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, this should be our MO, right? This should be our life mantra. This should be how we operate. However, and I'm guilty of this, we have the problem of taking those two commands and just making it so much more complicated than it needs to be. I think what we've seen in the church in a lot of ways is we've taken these two beautiful invitations, this command, and we've distilled it or we've reduced it to just, I gotta be good, right? I got to work harder. I got to pick myself up by my bootstraps every morning and just work hard at being a good person, right? Got to read my Bible more. Got to pray more. Got to go to church more. And I have to do all of these things that I don't want to do, but I have to do them because, you know, I'm a Christian. So I'm just going to be very good. But the problem is, is, we're not perfect in that at all, and we fail a lot. And so what then becomes our motivators is guilt and shame. Guilt, oh, look what I've done, and shame, look who I am, right? And so guilt and shame become our motivators, and that's not sustainable or sufficient at all. And we've reduced this beautiful invitation to participate in the kingdom of God, to love God and love neighbor, to being good. And then guilt and shame become our motivators for this moralistic enterprise, right? And surely it's got to be better than that. Like Surely God's plan is better than just trying to be good every day and then having guilt and shame when we fail, right? And I believe it is. And I believe that's what Paul is inviting us into in Colossians today, right? And so rather... What we're going to talk about is the only sufficient and sustainable motivator is to yield to the love 
of Jesus. To yield to the love of God, the love that God has for us, and to let that be the transforming agent in our lives. To let that literally kind of transform us from the inside out. And so that's what we're going to wrestle with today. I hope that's okay. Really appreciate you joining us for that. Uh, for this, um, before we continue on, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into the scripture. So let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you're such a good God. Uh, you love us so deeply and profoundly, and we're so, so grateful. Uh, we pray that as we wrestle with your scripture, that your spirit uh, would fill us in this moment. Wherever we might be at, uh, wherever, uh, wherever we're going, we just pray that technology would work and that your spirit would speak through your word, your scripture, uh, and help bring clarity to our hearts and our minds uh, so that we might participate in what you have for us. So God, thanks for being here. Thanks for being so kind and gracious to us. Uh, we love you. Thanks for loving us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so today, as I mentioned, we are in the book of Colossians. We are, um, we are doing something that is illegal today. We are eavesdropping and opening up someone's mail. That's what we're doing. Uh, Colossians is an epistle. It is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And his writing of this letter was of an urgent matter. There's something urgent happening that Paul needed to address. He's actually in prison when he's writing this. But it's so important. He has to get to this to the Colossians, and they have to understand um, what is going on. So the urgent matter is this. The church has just started, right? It's gaining traction. It's growing and it's being formed, right? It's being established. There's a culture around it that's growing. However, what Paul's noticed when he's heard and observed in the church in Colossae is that there's a lot of false teachings and false practices that are kind of interfering and impeding on the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul's writing to bring clarity, uh, to, to help them get clarity and, hey, this should not be the case. This should not be happening. Because some of the things that were happening, uh, one of them was uh, this uh, mystical polytheism, this idea that, hey, Jesus is just going to be one of the gods in our bucket of gods. Like we have all these gods. We're going to pray to all of them. What they would do is they'd pray to all of these gods and then hope that at least one of them would answer the prayers, right? It's kind of this shotgun approach. We're going to pray to all the gods and hope that one of them brings clarity, one of them responds to the prayer request. And so this was happening in the church of Colossae. Another thing that was happening is they had confusion around their obligation to the law. Like, are we supposed to obey the Torah? Are we supposed to obey all the laws of the Old Testament? Is that how we earn salvation, right? Um, and so Paul was writing to bring clarity to that, right? And then another thing that was happening is a lot of people were going to church uh, just to bolster their themselves up, bolster their identity, right? They were going to church and say, oh, look at me. I go to church. I'm holy, right? Like we see this today, let's be honest. And so <clears throat> Paul was writing to address these situations because all of them collectively impeded and intruded on the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that we receive salvation by faith alone, and that is what transforms us, right? And so Paul's writing to bring both theological clarity and practical instruction to the church in Colossae, right? And this portion of the letter, chapter 3, that we are in today is written to people who are struggling, um, who are being motivated by guilt and shame, right? They're being motivated by guilt and shame. And maybe some of us here today, myself included, uh, struggle with guilt and shame, right? Guilt is look what I've done, shame, look who I am, right? And so we struggle with these things. And so Paul is writing to bring great clarity and really freedom to the church, to experiencing something different, to experience what God actually does have for them, right? And so that's what this portion of the letter addresses in the solution, the solution that Paul invites the church in Colossae to experience, the solution that, the, uh, that, that Paul is inviting the CLC to experience is this, that we are invited to become who we already are, right? 
We are invited to become who we already are in Jesus, right? And we're not motivated by shame or guilt, right? That's not sufficient nor sustainable, but rather we are motivated, we are transformed by the profound love that God has for us, by the profound graciousness and the kindness that God has shown us. That is what brings transformation and that is what we should focus on, right? So a lot of fun, really excited to jump into this once again with you all. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Colossians 3 and I'm going to start right here in verse 1. Here it is. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this is where he starts. Uh, as we jump into it, I want to tell a quick story. Uh, in, in July 2016, my wife and I got married. And after we got married, we immediately moved to Tennessee, uh, where I was going to attend a graduate program down there. So we moved to Tennessee. <clears throat> and shortly after our moving there, a few weeks after we moved there, we wanted to make our residence official by getting a new driver's license. And actually, we just got married, so she needed a new ID with her updated name as well. So um, we moved to Tennessee. We went to the DMV, which is a really fun place to go to. It's not. I'm totally kidding. Um, we went to the DMV to get our driver's license. And so we got there. We brought all this paperwork, right? We uh, signed some documents. We got our pictures taken. And then we rendered a payment. And then there came this moment after doing all that where they asked us, hey, we need your old ID. And so they took the ID, they voided it, and they destroyed it. And then there came this moment in the process where they gave us a new ID. Officially, Legally, our residence has changed. We're no longer residents of Pennsylvania. That status has died, but rather right now, in the moment, our status completely changed. We were residents of Tennessee. However, uh, the funny part is, while we were residents of Tennessee, uh, we were the most Pennsylvanian residents there were. Pennsylvanian Tennessee residents there were in the whole state, right? Because we just moved to Tennessee. We weren't aware of the culture, of the lingo, of the expectations, of the differences between Tennessee and PA. All we knew was PA, who we were, right? I didn't know it was frowned upon in Honkin, Tennessee. Like, people don't do that very often. That's not a polite thing to do, um, right? And so we were residents of Tennessee by status. However, we were not yet residents of Tennessee by practice. Over the course of our years there, we got to actively become what we already were, which is Tennessee residents. Through our daily experience, we became what, our, what we already were, right? Tennessee residents. So as Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, the Colossians, right, <clears throat> who are having a difficulty following Jesus. He's reminding them, hey, those who have been raised with Christ, their status, their citizenship, their identity has been officially changed, right? Not on account of their works, right? They didn't earn this. They didn't pay the bill for this new ID, right? It was given to them as a gift. Nothing that they did earned them the status. Their status had officially changed. They've been given a new ID, a new status that reads redeemed and restored child of God, right? And now they are invited to, <coughs> with practice, by practice, to become what they already are, right? 
They're invited to, hey, your status has already changed, but you're invited to grow into who you already are in Jesus, right? It's, it's already happened, but grow into that, right? It's the equivalent of being on death row, right? And, uh, and Jesus comes in and you're, you're clearly guilty and he declares you as innocent, right? And you'd expect in that moment, if that were you, right? If that were us, that there'd be some natural joy and excitement. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just did that. We would be naturally motivated and transformed to become what we already are, which is, you know, what God has made us, right? Which is innocent, to grow into that role that he has given us, right? So there's some natural excitement about that. There's some natural joy, and the only natural byproduct is to respond, right? And so Paul's writing to them to respond in a different and new way, not to get preoccupied with the silly teachings and the silly practices that consumed that church, right? But to participate in a new way. And so Paul continues in this passage, and he actually uh, invites him to consider what it looks like to grow into this, right? He, he mentioned in the verse that we just read, to set their minds on things of heaven. And so he, he continues to detail, what does that look like exactly? What does it look like to become what you already are? And so he continues in verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been stripped off, that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator, right? <clears throat> I remember when I moved to Tennessee, um, there were, uh, to grow as a, a Tennessee resident, to become what I already was, I had to strip off some of the old parts of the old self, right? I had to remove, put to death some of the PA qualities in me if I were to become more of what I already was, a Tennessee resident, right? So some of the things I had to do differently was driving, right? Uh, driving, I had to be a little slower, right? Uh, just naturally, they're a bit more calm down there than people up here. So I had to drive slower. I had to honk far less. Probably things that I should be doing right now anyway in Pennsylvania, right? Um, it was just the kind of nature of life down there, which is totally okay and great. So drive a little slower, honk far less. I'm talking. I'm a fast talker sometimes. Uh, and so in order to become a better Tennessee resident, I had to engage and just slowing down, right? And so I did tr uh, talk a little slower, right? Had to try and shed that. I had to give up my uh, affinity and excitement for um, the NFL and because uh, the NFL is not as big down there. The co college football is the main thing. That is like its own religion in the South, right? I had to follow SEC, uh, the Southeastern Conference College Football Sports, right? Supporting the Vols uh, in Chattanooga, or not Chattanooga, Knoxville, uh, Hottie Toddy, Ole Miss in Mississippi, right? Uh, I had to shed my affinity for NFL because cultural, culturally, uh, college football was the thing down there, right? And and you guys, you don't hear that a lot in Tennessee. Um, what it is, is you actually hear y'all, right? It's almost illegal to say you guys, right? And so in order to become what I already was, which is a Tennessee resident, I started saying y'all a lot more, right? There were parts of the old self that needed to die, that were no longer compatible with the new status that I've been given. And so Paul is saying that if we're to grow into what we already are, to grow into the ID that we have been given, 
we, ha we have to not only void the old ID, but we have to put it to death, which is a really severe, intense way to say that, right? As citizens redeemed and restored, we abandon the destructive habits of the old and we embrace the new status that we've, uh, that we've been given, right? I can't love God and love my neighbor if I'm doing the things that I used to do, if I slander my neighbor, if I'm terrible to them and offensive to them, right? I can't love God and love neighbor. I can't experience this love revolution if I'm engaging the practices of old, if I'm embracing that old self, right? If I'm resuming the very habit uh, that ruined my life before, that continue to, even to a degree, right? <clears throat> Therefore, become what you already are. He's inviting us to put off the former self, put off, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, right? That's not who you are anymore. You don't have to do those things anymore, right? In verse 8, he says, but now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. This applies to anyone, especially who's driven on Route 1 for more than like five or ten minutes, right? Uh, put that stuff away, right? That is not who we are anymore. How can we love God and love our neighbor if we embrace the old self? And the answer is, guys, we can't. We need to be transformed. We need to be almost recreated, restored, right? So we, out of joy for given, be, being given this new status, out of excitement, the hope is that we are motivated by joy and excitement and by the love of God, we are transformed to put to death part of the old self, to, um, to get rid of the old self, the habits of old, the things that we once so easily did. Like hopefully we're being transformed where we see that, my goodness, there's a better way to do this thing called life. Uh, and it's, it's loving God and loving our neighbor, right? <clears throat> but we have to notice the old self just doesn't naturally die. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't fizzle out, right? Uh, theologian J.I. Packer unpacks this a bit. Uh, he talks about this in one of his books. Books, this idea that just sin doesn't just doesn't just go away. Uh, you all have seen those TV shows or those movies where there's like an angel on one shoulder and like a demon on the other, kind of yelling in your ears, right? And the person's like, "What am I gonna do?" Right? <clears throat> I think that's kind of uh, uh, it's in a comical sense. Uh, we kind of experience that to some degree. Like our alter ego doesn't just die. We still experience temptation. We still experience the broken nature to a degree, but the hope is that we are killing it and removing it and casting it off, right? <clears throat> and therefore, what Packer uh, writes is our aim then is to so drain the life out of sin, to starve it essentially, that it never moves again. We should plan to practice and develop the qualities most contrary to the sins we have to get rid of. So generosity if the problem is greed. A habit of praise if it is self-pity. Patience and forbearance if it's a bad temper. Planned living if it is sloth. And it's a life work. He even writes that we're not promised that we shall reach our goal in this life. And so part of our life work is casting off what we no longer are and embracing who it is that God has made us, right? And being transformed by the love of God in that, right? He also notes that we, um, we have a power over sin now that we're redeemed and restored beings, right? This is what he writes. When the Christian fights sin, therefore he opposes a dethroned and debilitated foe. He is animated by the energy of what is now the deepest and most powerful instinct in his nature. Paul's telling us, he says, he's telling the church, he's telling the CLC, he says, God has done a work perfectly and sufficiently on the cross 
And all you do is receive it and let that transform you. You're not motivated by guilt and shame anymore, but become what you already are. And let the love of Jesus both transform you and be a catalyst for you in this, right? Therefore, become what you already are. Here's another way to think about it. Um, <clears throat> my mom used to garden. Maybe many of you watching this uh, like to garden. You grow plants outside. Maybe it's fruit, vegetables. Uh, maybe it's just flowers, whatever it might be. Um, uh, I think uh, thinking about this like a garden is a good way to think about this. So my mom would love to garden. What she would do, she'd set aside a patch of grass, right? And she would redefine that patch of grass. She would say, this patch of grass is no longer a patch of grass. This patch of grass is my garden, right? Even though it didn't change in appearance, it was still set aside, set apart to be her garden, right? And then she would do things to this patch of grass that would make it more of what it already was, which is a garden, right? And so she would till, or she'd have my dad till the garden, right? Rip up the ground, remove some of the grass, and uh, till up so the dirt is fresh and new, right? Uh, they would plant seeds in the garden, and they would uh, water the seeds, right? These are things that are making it more of what it already is, which is a garden. Uh, and then she would prune the plants and trim the plants uh, to make it more of a garden. <clears throat> she would do all of these things to, again, make this set of part space more of what it was already defined as, which was a garden, right? However, every day there were elements of the old self of this garden that would try and sprout up and choke out what it already was, right? There were weeds that would grow almost daily that would try and choke out this garden. These were things of the former self, things of the former nature that were sprouting up to overcome this garden. And then there were external factors, right? There were animals that would try and uh, come into the garden and eat from the garden. So she put a scarecrow in there. And then there were her kids, her five kids, also animals, right? That would uh, try and ruin the garden, right? And so she um, did all of these things to protect the garden. In order to make the garden more of what it already was, she had to starve the weeds and r remove the things that interfered with what it was, things that weren't conducive to it being a garden, things that weren't natural for a garden, right? This is what we do to the garden of our soul, is we have to remove anything of the old self that is no longer compatible with who we already are in Jesus, right? But the problem is, is sometimes we make excuses, right? Sometimes we uh, we reduce how significant something is, like, oh, you know, it's just one weed, it's an, a small addiction. It doesn't impact anybody. It is a small sin. There's no ramifications for it. It's okay. And we treat these things, patterns of the former self, we treat them as like weeds that like, ah, oh, you know, I can let this one slide, but we should be treating it more like a cancer cell, right? That will consume the life, that will ruin the life, right? And so we need to treat our sin like a cancer cell. We're called to choke it out, to starve it, to put it to death each and every day, right? As J.I. Packer says, it's an ongoing process. Each and every day we need to choke out, to starve, to put to death things of old, the former self, as we become what we already are. And this is an ongoing process. And we sense the urgency of this in verse 6. It says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Paul's trying to convey the, the severity of this, the, the, the significant obligation to lean into what God has for us, right? Naturally, there's a wrath towards sin. Naturally, we as humans have a wrath towards sin, right? All the time we have a wrath towards sin. But a lot of times it's just other people's sin, not our own, right? So when someone harms us or they wrong us, we are angry, 
When someone harms someone that we love and care for, we are furious. We have a wrath. And the wrath is a product of our acknowledging that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so we get a wrath at other people's sin, right? Um, when we should have a wrath towards our own as well. I don't take God to just be a perpetually, a perpetually angry or bitter God, you know, up in heaven just waiting to strike us if we sin. I don't sense that Paul's trying to get at that in this passage either. But what I sense is we have a God who is who looks at what we are doing and he's heartbroken that his kids would treat each other uh, in these terrible ways. He is heartbroken that we would <coughs> exercise patterns of the former self, um, which creates so much problems. He is so sad that we would embrace those things, and then those things would wreak havoc on our life. So he is heartbroken. He's mad, and he's angry that we are experiencing these things when we've been redeemed and made new, right? And so... Uh, I think we have that same thing. And so for God to be angry, I think is just, right? He wants things to be right. That's justice and righteousness in the original language are very, very, in the original Greek are almost the same word, right? They communicate the same thing. God is a just God because he wants things to be right. And I think all of us want that, right? <clears throat> so there's natural anger. There's a wrath. There's a frustration towards that. So then Paul continues on. He says this renewal not only prompts us to do away with the former self out of joy, out of great joy for what God has done, right? <clears throat> but we are doing away with the old systems too that define how we relate to our neighbor. Again, we're supposed to love God and love neighbor. That's our MO as Christians. And so we're doing away not only with the brokenness in us, but we're doing away with the broken systems and the broken uh, cultural paradigms that we have built out of sin, right? And so this is what uh, Paul says in verse 11, he says, uh, in that renewal, there's no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, enslaved and free, but Christ is all and in all. One of the problems in the church in Colossae was that there's this heresy known as Gnosticism. And uh, one of the uh, tenets of Gnosticism was that only a select few people had access to God through this secret knowledge, right? <clears throat> Not everyone could access God. This was a very exclusive heresy uh, in Christianity that would make God uh, a commodity that was only accessible by a few people. Um, and a lot of times they'd use uh, social differences, racial differences, a lot of these differences as barriers, as a means to reinforce this heresy, to say, you don't have access to God. You're a slave. You don't have access to God, right? And so um, Paul's writing saying, that is not the case. The gospel is readily available to any and all people, anyone, regardless of these things, right? Uh, what we're seeing Paul uh, touch on is the, the markers or the barriers that people use to exclude people. Um, we see in that passage, no longer Greek or Jew. That was a racial barrier that defined social practices. We see circumcised and uncircumcised. That was a religious barrier that they instituted, right? There's Greek and barbarian, which is a cultural barrier. There's slave and free, which is a status barrier. There's barbarian and Scythian, which these were just marginalized populations that they equated to animals, right? <clears throat> And so Paul is saying the gospel, the good news, not only transforms us as individuals, but it transforms how we relate to our neighbor. Uh, the gospel, uh, there's a renewal that breaks down these current barriers um, that we lean into. And I would even say that this renewal that Paul is inviting us into even breaks down the current barrier that we have in our world today or our country of Republican and Democrat. I believe the gospel is profound enough um, to break that down, right? <coughs> 
So a huge marker of our being a new people is that it not only bears impact on who we are, but it bears huge impact on how we relate to our neighbor. Neighbor. These are tangible differences that we can both experience and participate in. And this is a product of the good news, right? That no one is excluded. Everybody is welcome despite their past, despite who they are, despite any barriers in the culture that we try and reinforce. No, everyone has access. All are in Christ. All can participate in that, right? <clears throat> And so the work of Christ is available to all. And this is such a beautiful thing, right? This is such a profound and beautiful thing. This should bring us great joy. So as we tend to the garden of our souls, as we become more of what we already are in Jesus, we kill remnants of the old self, right? However, it's not just enough to just kill remnants of the old self, right? Because what do we do? We get rid of uh, one bad habit and another, it creates a vacancy where another takes its place, right? Like I could say, I'm, I'm done eating pizza. It's not very healthy. <clears throat> done eating pizza, but then what do I do? I'm like, well, cheeseburger sounds really good, right? Uh, what happens is we can't only kill the old self, but what we have to do is fall in love with something new, to fall in love with something that we hold so tightly to, right? Um, author Thomas uh, Chomers puts it this way. He says, our love for something new and good has a natural power of ridding us of, of that which is old. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one by the love of God, a love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil, right? So what they're saying, what he's saying is we can't just kill the former self, but something, we have to fall in love with something that'll seize our interest, right? That'll, um, that'll preoccupy us and keep us so appropriately fixated on what is good, right? A silly example that I thought of and that I shared <clears throat> on Sundays, I would oftentimes brew coffee at my house. But when my wife finds a new drink at Starbucks, she no longer cares for, has little to no interest in the coffee that I brew that at one point in time she enjoyed. Um, but rather, she's so preoccupied, so in love with this drink at Starbucks that she'll want to go to Starbucks. And we go to Starbucks a lot, y'all. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to start a GoFundMe to fund this habit of ours, right? <clears throat> She fell in love with something new and that kind of did away with any preoccupation for her love for the old coffee. And, uh, and this is where Paul is inviting us to. He says, hey, we can do away with the former self and it gets a lot easier when we realize how loved we are. When we fall in love with God, right? When we fall in love with Jesus, that is such a beautiful way to get rid of the old self, right? And so this is where he continues in the passage. He reminds them of this so that they might be transformed by this love and that this love for something that is pure and good might do away uh, with the older self, that it might um, get rid of these old habits, right? And so he, he starts in verse 12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. <clears throat> I'm to stop there for a moment. <clears throat> Remember, we are becoming what we already are. And so what are we, according to Paul? What is the church in Colossae, according to Paul? Therefore, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. Holy is being set apart like a patch of grass that is going to be a garden, right? <clears throat> you are beloved. You are beloved. You are beloved. And this is not on account of anything that you've done. You didn't earn it. But God's work was so perfectly sufficient on the cross. And he loves us deeply. And so you are beloved. And so there's a weight and a significance. As we read verse 12, as we read these words, there should be a weight and a significance that we... Um, feel so 
captured by the love of God that this transforms us. This should be a joy, like, oh my goodness, we are God's chosen ones. We are beloved. We are set apart, right? And so before Paul gets into the next phrase, he's trying to remind them. He says, therefore, which whenever we see that word that's a hinge, everything I've written points to what is next, right? Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, right? So I hope we remember that uh, for ourselves. And so with that in mind, he continues. So therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against you, uh, against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. Remember, when, uh, when we moved to Tennessee, our status had officially changed, but we had to become more of what we already are, right? More of what our status had already said that we are. And so um, one thing that happened that still happens for me today is I say y'all a lot, right? I adopted that lingo pretty quickly uh, and I grew into that, right? So Paul's writing, as God's chosen, holy, and beloved, become what you already are, right? And then he's so gracious, Paul is, and he details this process a bit, right? And remember, at the beginning of this passage, uh, we're invited to set our mind on things that are above. <clears throat> I think too often, though, what we do as a church is um, we think of heaven so much. We're like, oh, I'm going to end up in heaven, so I don't have to worry about the world around me, right? It's kind of messy and broken, but I know where I'm going. I can kind of neglect the world around me, don't need to worry about it because I'm going to heaven, so I'm going to be so focused on heaven that, you know, just that's it, right? Um, however, if we notice all of the characteristics that Paul lists here, have everything to do with how we relate to our neighbor and God right now, right here on earth, right? Um, it talks everything about how we connect and love with God and our neighbor, right? <clears throat> and so we're not to be, as Oliver Wendell Holmes says it, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, right? But rather we're to be so heavenly minded that we naturally help make earth good. And Paul shows us how through this list of things that we are to engage in, right? And so in how we engage with God and neighbor, Paul invites us to clothe yourselves with compassion, right? The church should be the most compassionate place in the world. Like the community of the church should be the most compassionate people on the face of this planet. That's what Paul is inviting us to, right? <clears throat> we should be foolishly and recklessly kind to all people. And when people make fun of us for how recklessly kind we are, we should be be more recklessly kind to them, right? That is who we are. That's who we should be. We should be kind foolishly and recklessly. We should model forgiveness in a way that leaves people scratching their heads like, what are they doing, right? God has so freely forgiven us. We should we should uh, do that with our neighbor, right? It looks insane and unnecessary, but that what Paul, that's what Paul invites us into. And then we see this last thing, which kind of consumes all of them, is to love, to love our, our neighbor in a way that God has loved us. And how do we know how much God loves us? By focusing and, and receiving and being transformed by the love of God, right? Love unites all of these virtues. It is the umbrella of, underneath which all of the, the virtues that we are called to fall. <coughs> the active expression of a living faith, the natural byproduct of our status being changed, is faith, uh, living faith is self-giving love, right? And so that's what we're invited to. This is the love revolution, right? It's our being able to love God and love our neighbor in this way. It's a natural byproduct of our being who we already are in Jesus, which is chosen ones, holy and 
beloved, right? So the passage finishes with, with some final instruction. It says um, in verse 15, some instruction on how we can become what we already are. Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Remember, Paul's writing to a people, and maybe some of us identify with this, Paul's writing to a people who are motivated by guilt and shame. But rather, Paul's saying, no, don't let those things rule you, but rather... Let peace rule you. And the word here is really interesting. <clears throat> the, the word in Greek for peace or for rule uh, is like an umpire, someone to call the shots amidst contending voices, right? <clears throat> in Colossae, guilt was the umpire. Shame was the umpire. Personal um, promotion was the umpire, right? <clears throat> and uh, people ruling themselves was the umpire, right? That's, I think that's the, the root of sin is we just want to be our own gods. We want to rule ourselves, right? And so these were the motivating and driving forces um, for many of them and many of us. However, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Those things aren't sufficient. Those things aren't sustainable. Let the peace of God rule you, right? Let thanksgiving overflow out of you. How do we have peace and thanksgiving? Like, why can we have these things? Because we've been so deeply and so profoundly loved by Jesus. That is where our peace comes from. That is where our thanksgiving comes from. So Paul is saying, no, because of who you are, because of what Jesus has done, <coughs> let peace rule in your heart. Let gratitude overflow because you are so loved by God. You did not change your status of your own actions, right? You are so loved by God. Let those things, let that peace, let that gratitude rule in your hearts. Let that be the driving force, right? It's the only sufficient and sustainable driving force is to be transformed by the love of God, to be so compelled by the love of God, the love of Jesus, right? However, for any of us who's been in, in the church for a while, we hear this saying a lot, like, oh, Jesus loves you, right? God loves you. Uh, and I think over time, right, it, we kind of grow, um, we forget the impact and the punch of that. We don't sit with that as much as we need to. And it doesn't transform us as much because we've kind of lost, um, we've forgotten the magnitude of that reality, right? And so what I want to do is wrap up and invite us to consider practicing two things that I think could help us um, grow in understanding and to embrace the love of God. So that could be the motivating force to transform us into who we already are. And so the two practices I want to go over, the first one is to practice margin, which is the practice of creating holy spaces. It's no secret today that... Uh, People have very little margin, right? Life is busy and crazy. I hate it because every time someone asks me, how are you? Most often I say, I'm busy. And like, I don't want that to be the word that describes this beautiful life that God's given me, right? And, uh, but that's all I say because I have very little margin. I'm busy, right? We're all super busy. We have our jobs. Many of us, many of y'all have kids, right? There's social obligations that we have to fulfill. There's chores. We have to take care of a house. And with any spare time we might have, we just try and breathe, get a half an episode of Netflix in, and then we go to bed to wake up the next day and do it all over again, right? Right? 
Many of us are reeling and worrying even as we're watching this about what we have to do next in the day, right? We have very little margin. However, there's some things in life in order to be fully experienced, fully embraced that demand margin, right? They demand their due margin so that we can actually experience it and embrace it, right? <clears throat> Um, I'm sure a lot of you like to listen to music. I really like music. I actually did this really cool uh, experiment yesterday with the congregation. I love Bon Jovi, uh, his song Living on a Prayer. I actually started singing it, uh, you know, saying, whoa, we're halfway there. And then the congregation joined without prompting. They sang along, right? <clears throat> it's because music, when we give it its due margin, carries us. It motivates us. It compels us, right? Even if we're terrible singers, even if we don't know how to dance, somehow music, are co we're compelled so much so to sing and dance anyway, right? There's something about music that um, carries us, that motivates us, that compels us. <clears throat> now, off, more often though, I don't know anyone who often listens to their songs at double speed, right? Uh, I looked on the, the main streaming platforms for music and there wasn't really an option to say, hey, you can listen to your song double speed here, but rather they do include an option that says repeat, right? Because when it comes to music, when it comes to music, we don't want to rush through it. We give it its due margin in order to experience the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of these songs. We give it its due margin. We listen to the whole thing and then we listen to it again because we love it so much, right? Uh, to appreciate Beethoven, we don't rush through his music. No, we, we give it its due margin and let it have its due space to speak to us. I think God's love is the same, right? It's something that we it's something that in order to experience it in fullness, in order to grow in it, to learn the mystery of God's love, to um, experience it in the way that we need to, we need to relish in it. We have to give it its due time. To experience its beauty and its wonder, we have to give it its due time. We can't experience it or be formed by it um, if we don't receive it and sit in it as the gift that it is, right? But the problem is, is a lot of us have already allocated all the time. Like, I don't know if I have a lot of time to just kind of sit and receive and be transformed by the love of God, right? And, and what we've done is we've allocated our time to a lot of good things, right? Obviously, being, a, being in a family is a great thing. Like, you got to take care of your family. Uh, work's a really important good thing, right? Some of the things that we give our time to are good things. However, if the good things in our life impede on our ability to experience the greatest thing, then some of those good things are no longer good things, right? Uh, the greatest thing that we can experience is a, a loving relationship with God. And of all the good things in our life, if we've allocated all of our time to these good things and they impede on our ability to experience the greatest thing, then we have to question whether or not our good things are really good things, right? So in order to be transformed by the love of God, in order to be influenced and shaped by it, we need to give it its margin every single day. And I say margins like, you know, we think of the sides of the paper, but I think actually we give it the, the best moment of our day, at the beginning of the day. Because the cool part about this is when we create margin for the love of God, it then, it then <coughs> impacts and benefits all of the other things that we give our time to. It influences and, and infiltrates, right, all of the things that we give our time to, and it even transforms how we experience those things. And so we need to give God the margin, give God the space. We need to sit in the love of God, be transformed by it, right? 
And I don't know what this looks like for you and your family, right? It could just be sitting down and reading scripture together. It could be experiencing prayer together, creating space where you're listening to a song together about the love of God, right? <clears throat> and then just sitting that in that and letting it transform you. Just like we do with a lot of other things, like with a book. We usually don't rush through a book or a song or a movie or a TV show, or even if you're making a cup of tea, you know, you don't rush through that. You let it steep and you let it sit. And I think we just have to steep in the love of God. And in doing so, we'll be transformed by that, right? And so as we grow in our understanding and realize the depth of the love of God, I believe it naturally changes us. And I can't do it for you and the church can't do it for you. I think this is something that we have to lean into on our own with our family. Um, and so out of love for God, we practice margin. And the second thing is this, out of love for God, we practice motion, which is creating holy rhythms in our life to grow, right? <clears throat> Uh, once we've created margin, we then practice emotions. These are disciplines or practices that are forming for us, right? I told everybody yesterday that no one, no one can grow a garden. You can't grow a garden. I can't grow a garden. What we can do is we can curate a space that is conducive for plants to grow, right? I can remove weeds. I can uh, till the dirt, plant a seed, water it, put it in the sunlight. But I can't make that plant grow. I could yell at it, it won't grow. You know, I can't force it to grow, I have no control over that. But what I do is I give it time and I curate the environment and then it grows, right? But I can't control that. I am just responsible for creating the space that is conducive for growth. I curate an environment that makes it most likely that something will grow. And then out of hope and out of discipline, it grows, right? <clears throat> in the same way, what we have to do in our lives is once we create margin, we invite holy rhythms and practices and disciplines that create an environment where the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. Because I can't change myself, but I can create an environment. I can establish rhythms and habits and practices that create a space that open me up to the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit can transform form me into who I already am, right? And that's what we're invited into. We create space and we're transformed by the love of God. We create practices which, um, which help us grow, help create a space where the Spirit can come and transform us from the inside out. And so that's what Paul has been inviting the church to do. He says, hey, let peace rule your hearts. Let peace rule your hearts out of great joy for what God has done. Consider God's profound love and express thanksgiving as a result, right? Let the scriptures dwell in you so richly and abundantly that you are transformed by, by, by them, right? These are practices in margin that are supposed to transform the church, transform us, right? And then he says, and then he invites us, you know, do these things in community as a church, right? Sing songs of thanksgiving together. And all these things, but you do it in love. And do all these things in the name of God the Father, right? Just a beautiful invitation. We don't have to be motivated by guilt and shame. We don't have to work harder. We don't have to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we just have to create margin and uh, rhythms in our lives that open the door for God to do a work in our soul, for God to transform us, for God to change us from the inside out. And it is a beautiful thing when the church can do this. Now, I don't know what this looks like for you and your family, only you guys know that, right? Only you know um, 
what this looks like for y'all. So I want to challenge you and invite you, right? The most important part of a sermon is actually not the sermon at all. It's what happens afterwards. And so we want to invite you and challenge you. What does that look like for you and your family? How can you get connected maybe to this church community? Um, how can we help you create margin and, uh, and motion in your life? Um, what resources can we give? Like, what can we do? How can we pray? What is it? But what does it look like for your family to do that? Um, because I think a beautiful thing happens when we make ourselves available to the transforming power of God. We then become more of what we already are. And it's such a beautiful thing. And it's so freeing and wonderful. And so I want to invite you guys to do that, to lean into what that might look like for your life. Um, <coughs> We're excited to see what God's doing in the church uh, in the season right now, and we hope that people will lean in and participate in that. Um, before I let you guys go, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. So let's pray together. God, you are so good. Um, I think when we fail to fully recognize and receive you properly, um, we settle for things like shame and guilt as motivators. And so, God, we pray that out of uh, your love for us, that your, your grace for us, that we might receive um, your love, that we might create margin in our lives and motion um, where we're just practicing receiving your love. And may that love transform us into who you've already set us apart to be, into we, who we already are. We trust and know that your work on the cross was sufficient and beautiful and perfect. And we just pray that we would, um, that we would receive that. And so God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. We pray all of these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Uh, thank you again for your graciousness and your kindness towards us uh, with our tech mishaps over the weekend. Um, we hope you come back this weekend as we continue on in our series. Pastor Bob will be back with us and we'll be in week four of our Love Revolution series. And so I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that we can all experience the transforming power and the love of Jesus. And I hope that we can create margin and space uh, and practices for those things to happen. And I'm confident that the best witness of a church isn't the programs, it's not the church service, not the sermons, not the music, but it is a community of people who've been transformed by the love of Jesus. And so let's lean into that, let's be transformed, and uh, let's partake in the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you guys soon.